Turn to Titus, if you would. Titus chapter 1. I know in last week's bulletin I put that this week we would preach from 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the passage I read to you just a second ago. But in preparation this week, I really felt the Lord leading me to just preach from Titus chapter 1 on this little portion of Scripture here that speaks about eldership in the church. It's Titus chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 4 um, through verse 9 here in just a second. Titus 1, uh, verse 4 through verse 9. As I mentioned last week, um, leadership in the church basically breaks down into two categories. There are servant leaders in the church, which are the deacons. And there are spiritual leaders in the church called elders, or also pastors and overseers. It's the same word, so I use it interchangeably all throughout the sermon. Yet last week, and I'll use it this week as well, elders, pastors, overseers, it's the same thing. That's one office in the church. The other office is the office of, of deacon in the church. Now, that phrase spiritual leader, though, may be a little bit misleading. The scriptures don't use that phrase spiritual leader. I've been just using it to sort of summarize this pastor, overseer, elder office in the church. But in reality, as we just prayed, as we sang that song, I'm hoping that the Lord raises up lots of spiritual leaders in the church. But there are some who are given the office of leadership of overseeing the church body. Last week we examined the nature of spiritual leadership in 1 Peter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. And today we'll look at who these men are supposed to be. That is, what kind of men they're supposed to be. In other words, we're looking at the character of the elder. I'm focusing, like I said, on Titus chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9, But this passage is very similar to the one we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. So I'll be referring back to 1 Timothy as well throughout the sermon. But please stand, if you would, right now as we read Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. The word of the Lord says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We want your word to go forward this morning. Um, Father, we believe that your word does not return void. My words are, are not what's most important here. It's your word, Lord. And my words are subject to error and strain, but your words are not. So, Father, I pray that my words would be faithful to your word this morning. Make me faithful. If there be anything in the sermon this morning that's not faithful to the trustworthy word that's been taught, then, Father, I pray that you strike it from the sermon. And, Lord, in here, all of us have ears that are prone to, to want to hear things that make us happy. In other words, we have itching ears. So, God, I pray that you'd keep us from itching ears and give us open ears to hear what your word says about spiritual leadership in your church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Please be seated. This morning I brought, for illustration, my son's black belt. I'm not going to have him do a demonstration or anything. I just asked for his belt. And I actually wanted to find Emma Kate's white belt. Because she's in karate too, but she has a white belt right now. But it was last minute when I was thinking about this, and we couldn't find it this morning. So anyway, I just brought Noah's black belt. It has three little stripes on here, which means that he is a third-degree black belt. So this is his black belt. It's very valuable, very important to him. And he's worked really hard for, was it, eight, nine years to achieve this. But when you go to the karate class, now Kate's still a white belt. And Noah actually helps teach Kate too. When you go to class, there is the instructor standing there, or the, the master, or the instructor. And he is doing his karate moves. And in front of him is a mirror. And then behind him is the class. So the class can see exactly how he's doing the motions. The purpose of the mirror is so that they can see what he's doing and then copy what he's doing. Try to follow his example. And in karate you have uh, these kids trying to become like the one who's demonstrating the moves. And then there's a structure in karate as well. There's a, a master and then a grandmaster. And so I was thinking about this illustration and even thinking about how Emma Kate, how she's young in her karate career... And she looks up to Noah. Every time they're at, at practice, she'll do a move. And Noah, I don't know if you notice this or not, but she'll, she'll do a move. And then she'll look up to you with a smile on her face for approval. Like, did I do it right? And that's because she's looking up to and wanting to follow his example. And as I was thinking about this list here that Paul gives to Titus, and then also the list he gives in 1 Timothy, I was just thinking about how this list here isn't something special to make elders different. It's a list that everyone is to try to seek after and to try to, to follow and to emulate. Elders are given to church to set the example. To say, okay, this is it, guys. And so you're looking for men in the church who set that example, who can be there in front of the church, standing in front of the mirror, if you will, saying, okay, this is the way you are to live the Christian life. Now, that's a, a lot of weight on the elder. But that's essentially what Paul's doing here when he gives us these lists. He is saying he wants leaders who lead by example so that the flock can grow in their faith. But the elder is only an under-shepherd. There is a grandmaster, if you will, a grand-shepherd, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. So the elder is only going to lead to the degree to which he himself is submitted to the chief shepherd. And so what you're looking for in an elder is someone who's submitted to Christ. You're seeing Christ in them. You're seeing them grow and become more like Christ. And therefore, they can set the example for the whole church body. We began this series because I hope that God will be adding elders to our leadership relatively soon. And we have a lot of new people here who may not know what we believe in regards to church leadership. So we're doing this series hopefully to address church leadership in the church so that the body can be on the same page. We did preach through 1 Timothy and Titus way back about four or five years ago. But there's a whole different group of people here now. And so we need to make sure we're teaching it clearly again. Last week, like I said, we began by talking about what spiritual leadership is. This week we're going to talk about who spiritual leaders are. And next week, Lord willing, we will talk about why spiritual leadership is needed. Now the first thing I want you to see this morning in regards to who spiritual leaders are... And this actually is related to the why question as well. Is I want us to look at the purpose for which they are appointed in the church. So the first thing in your notes here is that elders are men appointed for the purpose of embedding a pattern of orderly governance in 
the church. Elders are men appointed for the purpose of embedding a pattern of orderly governance in the church. Verse 5 here of Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We have no clear indication from the scriptures as to how the gospel first got to Crete, the island of Crete. What we do know is that there were some Cretans present at Pentecost. We read that in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. So most likely then some men who were present at that event took the gospel, took the good news back home with them. So churches most likely began to form at that point in Crete or on the island of Crete. But it seems from this text that at some point during Paul's missionary journey, he himself had visited Crete and decided to leave Titus behind in order to put what remained in order. That's the way he he words it, to put what remained in order. What does that mean, to put what remained? The word remain here actually means to lack. So the verse could read, to put what was lacking back into order. This indicates that the churches on Crete were missing something. Namely, they suffered from a lack of church governance and structure. We also know from this little letter to Titus that there were false teachers that had arisen on the island of Crete and that the culture of Crete was one of rampant corruption and immorality. So order was needed. It's interesting today, and maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't, how order and structure in the church is often sneered at. Even in church growth circles, the talk is about organic have an organic church, and when you begin to talk about, well, we need to have structure, we need to have doctrine, that gets kind of sneered at. But friends, God is the one who commands structure for his people. It isn't because we want structure in order to control people. It's that God orders it. He says, put things in place in the church for the sake of governance and for the sake of doctrine. When biblical governance and structure are lacking... There is a leadership vacuum that is left, and it quickly gets filled with bad leadership. Many churches are lacking because God's design for biblical leadership has been either ignored or unwittingly replaced by more pragmatic, man-centered designs of leadership. That was the situation in Crete. So Titus was calling on them to put what was lacking into order. What does this mean, into order? Well, it's one word in the Greek... And this is the only place it's used in all of the Bible. But when we look at other ancient Greek literature, we discover that it was a medical term which meant to set a bone back in place. So the image it gives us here is that the church without proper leadership is a church that is broken. And it needs to be set into place. It needs to be put back into order. Churches that stray from scriptural church governance are not only lacking, they are broken. And they need to be reset. But this word had other usages in the Greek-speaking world as well. When not being used in the medical sense, it simply meant to reform or to fix, which makes sense. So the churches in Crete lacked proper governance, so they needed reform. And they needed elders, therefore, in order to enact this reform. Notice that they needed a multiplicity of elders. We talked about this last week. It says in verse 5, appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular. We already discussed this, that the model for biblical eldership, biblical pastoral leadership, is one of multiplicity. A multiplicity of elders in every church, not just one. Harbins, therefore, we seek a plurality of elders, not necessarily out of need, 
but out of our desire to be structured, ordered, biblically. Let me say that again. I said it last week. We want a multiplicity of elders at Harvest, not necessarily because we, we just need a multiplicity of elders right now, but because we want to be ordered in the way that the Scripture orders the church. God desires order in His church, for God indeed is a God of order. And he desires order in his church because ordered churches are healthy churches. As I thought about this, I was reminded of Acts chapter 13 and 14. We read of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey as they took the gospel into into Galatia. As you recall, they went into Antioch uh, and they were harassed and they were ran out of town. Then they went to Iconium and there they were mistreated and they were almost stoned. And then they went to Lystra where Paul was stoned and he was dragged out of town because he was stoned so badly that they thought he was actually dead. Then they headed to Derby. And then we read this. Now, if you look at the maps of the missionary journeys, you'll see they kind of make a circle. And they get to Derby. The most logical thing to do is to finish out the circle and go back to the other Antioch, which was their home church. That would have been made a whole lot of sense. But they don't do that. This is what we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They returned to the cities where they had been harassed and threatened and almost killed. Why did they do that? Well, it says in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So they went back because they wanted to strengthen the churches. They wanted to make them healthy. They wanted to encourage them, make them strong so that they could endure In other words, they wanted to put things in order. And so then we read in verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So how does Paul and Barnabas choose to strengthen the churches? They go, they preach the gospel, they establish churches, they turn around, go back into towns where they were almost killed. Why? Because they want to strengthen the churches. And how do they strengthen the churches? Not by just giving them pep talks, but by putting order in place. Healthy churches are churches that are ordered biblically. You want to be strengthened? You want to be encouraged to endure? Be at a church that has biblical leadership. That's exactly what they were doing. Strong churches are churches that have men who have been appointed elders. But who does disappointing? Now, friends, the only clear scriptural evidence we have is that Paul and Barnabas appointed the elders in the churches of Galatia, as we read right here. So that's apostles appointing elders. And then we see Titus appointing elders here on Crete. So that's elders appointing elders. And then we read in 1 Timothy 4, 14, that Timothy was appointed to eldership when the council of elders laid hands on him, which is probably the closest thing we find in the scriptures to ordination. So it seems that elders... Appoint elders in the scripture. But that does not mean that there's no congregational involvement whatsoever. Not necessarily. But there is no mandate that the congregation appoint the elders. Unlike deacons in Acts chapter 6 where the the congregation chooses and appoints the deacons. The only evidence we have in scripture is that elders appoint elders. Now I do think a wise church will undertake to involve the congregation to some degree. But the final say in appointing elders resides within the eldership. 
Let me remind you, however, that elders are not autocrats. They're not dictators. They are still submissive to the church congregation. Beyond that, they're under the headship of Christ. So I said, what we believe in here at Harbin's is elder-led, deacon-served congregationalism. So elders are appointed in each one of these churches. Titus is being told by Paul to appoint elders for the purpose of embedding a pattern of orderly governance. But also we see, secondly, that elders are men appointed for the purpose of exhibiting a pattern of godly living in the church. Which, which relates to the illustration I gave just a minute ago with the karate stuff. Elders are men appointed for the purpose of exhibiting a pattern of godly living in the church. So now we get into the list of qualifications. There's this one here in Titus 1, which is, like I said, is very similar to the one in 1 Timothy 3. Most of the qualities expected of elders is listed in both places. However, the 1 Timothy passage does have a couple of unique items, as does the Titus passage. So as we walk through this section, I'll refer back to 1 Timothy often, and I'll try to draw the two texts together. Now before I get into these lists of qualifications, before we think about these, first I just want you to notice how how unspectacular they are. As D.A. Carson put it, they are remarkably unremarkable. So I went this week and I looked for some secular lists on what makes a good leader. And I found a lot of stuff, so I'm just, just going to pick a few here. Um, a good leader is a vision caster. A good leader knows how to build teams. A, a good leader has a can-do, get-it-done attitude. A good leader is analytical, ambitious, and inspirational. A good leader is confident, calm, and collected. A good leader has laser-like focus. A good leader is self-confident and self-aware. A good leader is broad-minded. And a good leader has a great sense of humor. None of that's in Paul's list. Matter of fact, I couldn't find, with maybe exception of a couple of things, any of what Paul talked about in any of those lists. Paul's list seems to be pretty pedestrian to us. As a matter of fact, every single one of the things mentioned are things commanded of all believers. Every Christian is to not do what is prohibited here in this passage and to do what is commanded here in this passage. It's not that elders are commanded not to be drunkards, but anyone else in the church is free to get slammed on the weekends. It's not that elders are commanded not to be violent, but anyone else in the church can go around picking fights. It's not that elders are commanded to be hospitable, but anyone else in the church is free to be cold, unfriendly, and unwelcoming. And we could go on and on and on. The point is not that this is some sort of special list for elders, as if elders were some sort of special class of Christians on some sort of second stratum of holiness. This is commanded of all believers. No, elders are simply to be consistent Christians. Elders are simply to be consistent Christians. Elders are to lead in the ordinary Christian life by example. Elders are to lead in the direction that every Christian in the church should already be going. I once heard a pastor put it this way. Elders are to be Christianity with skin on. And so as you think about the karate illustration again. And the kids are watching their karate instructor. The goal is they want to become better at karate. They want to get the next belt level. It's not that they just want to admire their teacher. Oh, I'm coming here just to admire my teacher. I'm coming here because I want to be better at what I do. And so that's the deal here. This, this list here isn't about 
hey, look at these elders. Boy, look how holy they are. Wow, what a great standard that they've got to hold up to. No, he said, no, they are to be leading in the way that all of us should be heading. Therefore, the church, friends, is not to demand virtues of a pastor that they themselves are not pursuing. The church is not to demand virtues of a pastor that they themselves are not pursuing. Therefore, this list is applicable to all. These should be the marks of every believer. So if you don't think there's application in this text for you today, you're wrong. With that said, let us look at the list here. Here in Titus, you'll see that it breaks down into two sections. Number one, the elder at home, his marriage and family life, in verse 6. And then number two, the elder in public, his, his, his character and his conduct. And that's verses 7 through 8. Both sections begin with a call to be above reproach. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Paul uses that exact same word about being above reproach, that phrase in 1 Timothy 3 at the very head of that list. Literally, it means he is to be blameless. Now, this does not mean sinlessly perfect. If that were the case, there would be no elders. Period. Even Paul would be disqualified. Only the Lord Jesus can claim absolute sinlessness, blamelessness. So what is meant by this phrase? Well, it means living in a manner that gives no justified cause for others to accuse or think badly of an elder. The emphasis is on the elder's reputation. Not that he is sinless, but that there is no ongoing blame attached to him. If he does commit a wrongdoing, which as a sinner he will... He immediately repents and seeks to make it right. He is to have a reputation that does not invite criticism from either those inside the church or those outside the church. We see that in the fact that Paul starts his list in 1 Timothy calling for elders to be above reproach and then finishes his list in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall into into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So the elder is free from scandal and habits that make him a target of criticism. That's what it means to be above reproach. First of all, he is to be above reproach in his family life, in his home. We read that he is to be the husband of one wife. This is also mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, 2. Now, as you probably know, that's a hotly debated passage of Scripture right there. What exactly does this mean, he is to be the husband of one wife? Literally, in the Greek, it reads, he is to be... Of one woman man. Of one woman man. So how are we to interpret this phrase? And there are varying different opinions on this. And there are going to be many people who differ from my opinion on this. Number one, perhaps it just means that he must be married. It says he's to be a, a, of one woman man. Okay, as we translate it in, in our English ESV, the husband of one wife. Well, maybe that means he has to be married. He must be a husband. Now, that doesn't seem likely to me. I don't think that's a good interpretation because Paul himself would have been disqualified. And also, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, okay, that singleness is a charisma. It's a gift. It's a gift from God for the purpose of serving the church. It would seem odd then to exclude those given such a gift from eldership. So I think that one's out right away. But if you believe that, I'm free to, free to disagree with me on that. Or perhaps, number two, it could mean that he must not be remarried even after the death of a spouse. So some people say it's just, it prohibits any kind of remarriage at all 
particularly even after the death of a spouse. But, but, but that doesn't seem to make sense to me, and it doesn't seem to fit well with the list, because this is a list about character issues. Plus, Paul uses the same phrase for widows in 1 Timothy 5, 9, where he says that they are to be enrolled for care in the church if they have been a, a, of a one-man woman. So it's the same phrase, just with the genders flipped. Yet Paul doesn't prohibit younger widows from remarrying in chapter 5, verse 14. So it doesn't seem to me that being married twice is any sort of issue here in regards to being married after the death of a spouse. Number three, perhaps he's referring to men not being polygamous. This is D.A. Carson's view. He simply believes it's a prohibition against polygamy. Well, this could be the case. Polygamy was practiced somewhat in Paul's day, but not in the general population. But it was practiced amongst the ruling class. Kings and leaders and rulers had multiple wives. So perhaps he's saying that the rulers in the church cannot be like the rulers in the world. So maybe it's a prohibition against polygamy. I would certainly think that that it's included there. I don't think you can let polygamists be elders in the church. But perhaps, number four, it means that he's not to be remarried after any type of divorce. Well, possibly, and many in the church take it to mean this, I would say that most Southern Baptist churches will deny eldership or deaconship to any man who's been divorced for any reason. But there was a Greek word for divorce, and Paul doesn't use that word either here or in 1 Timothy. It seems that he would have simply used that word had that been his intent. And so maybe there is some divorce that's not allowed in eldership, but a broad not allowing of any divorce, I'm not sure that's the case here. Or maybe number five, it simply means that if he is married, he is to exhibit Christ-like faithfulness to his wife. This would be a broader definition that would exclude some who have been divorced because of their own unfaithfulness, but it would also exclude men who were not divorced but exhibited unfaithful behavior to their wives in other ways, such as being flirtatious or being addicted to pornography. A married man can very well not be a one-woman man. Do you realize that? So I think it's, it's a broader definition than, than all these other narrow definitions that so many people want to, to zero in on. I think it's a very broad definition talking about faith. It's talking about character issues here. Faithfulness to his wife. Paul is, I believe, speaking about Christ-like fidelity in marriage. And it seems to fit with the text since the text focuses here on character issues. Divorce can be a character issue, but not necessarily. Some divorces are not the fault of the believer. Even Paul gives permission for divorce to go forward if an unbelieving spouse desires to leave the marriage. Now, my view on this is not a slam dunk case, but I believe that Paul is speaking about elders being above reproach in faithfulness to his wife. This may or may not exclude the divorced or the non-divorced man. Now, secondly, we read here, though, in verse 6, that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, this is another difficult passage, and it's also open to much debate. The word for believers here is the word translated in other places as faithful. Is this text saying that elders' children should be Christians, or is it saying that they should be faithful children, submissive and obedient to their father? Well, we should always let the context drive the way we use the word. And uh, sometimes the context makes it very clear as to which definition to choose. Sometimes it doesn't, like this case here. 
Paul uses the word both ways in his epistles. In 1 Timothy, when he uses this word, he almost always uses it in reference to someone's saving faith. But in 2 Timothy and in Titus, when he uses this word, he almost always uses it in reference to trustworthiness or faithfulness. And I tend to lean towards that definition here. First, if children must be believers, then are elders with young children excluded? Children that haven't made a quote-unquote profession of faith, can those men not be elders? Or is there some age at which we expect that child to make a profession of faith? You know, hey, your son's 10 now, and you know what? He has not professed that he's a believer yet. I'm not sure you can continue to be an elder here. I mean, I mean, what is it, if it's, it's talking about children's belief, is there a time do we expect that children should have made a profession of faith? Or, or do we just look for fruit of belief to come from their life? What about after they leave the home? What if they walk away from the faith? How long is this supposed to be binding? After all, the word he uses for children here usually refers to small children. So I think that the aim here is that the elder is running his home in such a way that his home is above reproach in that the children in his home are submissive, obedient, and not rebellious. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. There will be inevitably occasional issues of disobedience and rebellion in any person's home. But the overall pattern of the elder's home is one of discipline and instruction resulting in children who are faithful to their parents. I think this interpretation parallels very well with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, which says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And I also will say this, homes that are led that way usually, but not always are the means by which children do come to saving faith. So more than likely, you're going to see elders who have believing children in the other sense of the word, that they have exercised saving faith. Now I know I'm going against the ESV translation here, and so many of you may disagree with me here, and let's talk about that. But after studying this passage, and comparing the way Paul uses this word in many other places, including all of his epistles, but especially the pastorals, I believe that he's talking here about an overall, above reproach, leadership that the elder exercises in home to where his children show faithfulness and trustworthiness in the home. And this is important. Because the main thing that Paul is aiming at here is that the elder's household is the testing ground for whether or not he can manage God's household. Let me say that again. The elder's household is the testing ground for whether or not he can manage God's household. 1 Timothy 3, 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The question is this. Is he above reproach, first of all, in his family life, in his home, but also is he above reproach in his public character and conduct? In his public character and conduct. Verses 7 through 8. We have five character traits that, that he should not exhibit, followed by seven ones that he should exhibit. So five negative and seven positive virtues. I'm going to walk through them quickly here. First, the five things he must not be. Number one, in verse seven. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. The word here means obstinate, stubborn. It's also translated in some versions as self-willed. It means that he seeks only to please himself. He He is not to act as if the world revolves around him. He won't be the type of person who uses people for his own ends. He puts others first. And therefore he is able himself to have a teachable spirit. It goes hand in hand with the next thing which we see. Which is that he is not to be quick-tempered. 
The next thing here is that he is not to be quick-tempered. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that he's not to be quarrelsome. He cannot be a hothead. He cannot have a short fuse ready to go off on anyone and every, everyone who crosses his path. Why? Because as an elder, as an elder, he's also a pastor, which means that relationships are important. He is a shepherd. He has to be careful with his anger. He can't be quick-tempered. So he should, not, he should demonstrate patience and long-suffering in relationships. He should not be quick-tempered and quarrelsome. But he also should not be a drunkard. Now, this was a major issue in Paul's culture, especially here on Crete, where the worship of Dionysus, the false god of the grape harvest, involved getting hammered. You know how you worship Dionysus? You got drunk. That's how you worship that false god. And so how scandalous would it have been for those who called themselves Christians to worship the one true God to exhibit such behavior, to get drunk. Elders are to not be violent, to which 1 Timothy 3.3 adds, but gentle. This means he is not heavy-handed. He's not a bully. Certainly many who are gifted for leadership can have assertive and forceful dispositions. But the man of God must act with meekness, learning his leadership style from the Lord Jesus, who never rode roughshod over others, but exercise humble yet bold leadership. He must also not be greedy for gain or not a lover of money, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy. The elder therefore guards himself in the area of covetousness and greed. This means that he will have a good work ethic as well. It also means that what money is given to him by the church will not be gained by dishonesty or through manipulation. That's the type of person he should not be. All these areas, he is to set an example for the believer and not behave in these ways. Now Paul shifts to some positive virtues that the elders should possess. And they are very much the opposite of the negative traits that Paul has just mentioned. That's why in verse 8 he begins with the word, with the conjunction, but. He should not be all that was just listed, but on the contrary, he should be, verse 8, hospitable. Hospitable. Mi casa es su casa, right? That should, be the, that should be the family motto of every pastor. Our house is your house. My home is your home. His home should be a place that is open for those into the church, even open to strangers if need be. Hospitality, friends, deepens fellowship. It fosters discipleship and opens up opportunities for evangelism. Let me say that again. Hospitality deepens fellowship, fosters discipleship, and opens up opportunities for evangelism. I was at a pastor's house once when we were having a, a youth. Um, you guys who've grown up in church are probably familiar with kind of D-Now type of thing. So you have a bunch of youth at a specific house doing a Bible study. And um, I'll never forget this. It's always stuck in my mind, and I want to be careful not to do this myself. But we were all sitting around having this Bible study, and the Bible study went beyond the allotted time. It was supposed to end like at 10 or 9, who knows. But the conversation kept going, kept going. I noticed the pastor, we were in the pastor's house. I noticed him fidgeting over there. And finally he said, when are you going to get done? The Kentucky game is on. And as soon as we, okay, we need to wrap this up. We said amen and we got out of the way. He turned the game on and zeroed in on that game. And I remember thinking, I felt so unwelcomed here at this home with this pastor who acted that way. And that's the opposite of what Paul's talking about here. Hospitality means you welcome people to interrupt your life. You allow people to cause your life to be a little bit disrupted. But see, we like our comfort. We like our house. We like our house being clean. 
We like our schedule. We like our kids getting in bed on time. We like, like, like. And when disruption comes in, we don't like. That's the exact opposite of what Paul talks about here. Elders are open to saying, my life's going to get a little disrupted because of the very nature of where God has placed me in the church. Hospitality. Also, it says that the elder must be a lover of good. It simply means that he's an ally of what is good. He, this could mean good people. It could mean good deeds. It could mean good things. It denotes a devotion to all things that are best. It carries the idea that he not only approves of what is good, but he fosters it. He desires it. He supports it. He promotes it. Also, it says he is to be self-controlled, as your translation may say, sensible or of sound mind. It denotes sound thinking that leads to controlled living. It means that the elder must be a thinker. Self-control begins in the mind, friends. It begins with sound thinking. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control, as it may be translated in your version, sound mind. Part of the reason pastors, myself included, lack self-control in so many areas of our life is that we don't take time to stop and think and to meditate upon God's words, and to simply be still and know God. So church, make sure as we grow as a church, you give your pastors freedom to have time to think and to meditate on the word. It may not seem like much work to you. What did you get done this week? I meditated on the word. No, I mean, like really, what did you do this week? I mean, did you visit the sick? Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Give your pastor's time to be still and know God. To simply be still. That's what this word is all about. The self-control. That's what this means. He can't be a self-controlled mind and a self-controlled man if his mind is in a thousand different places. I think too many pastors are too busy to think hard and long. So we just act and react. Before we know it, life is out of control. An elder must also be upright here, according to Paul. This simply means that he must be just in his dealings. He can be trusted to do what is right and just in any given situation. It refers to his conduct in honoring God's law, but also civil law as well. I don't want to just give negative examples. And I'll use the pastor's name this time. My pastor, back when I lived in Arkansas, a pastor by the name of Tim Wallace. A very, uh, I would say a man who very much exhibits the qualities listed in these lists. i never forget another youth outing. We were going to go spelunking. You know what spelunking is? Look, you know, cave exploring. And there in Missouri, the, the southern part of Missouri in northwest Arkansas, there's lots of caves you can explore. And some of these caves are just right off the road. And, 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 and we went to one cave that he really wanted to take the youth to. And we got there and as we're getting ready to go to this little cave, there was a little sign. It wasn't very high. And it was even covered by a little bit of grass. But apparently it said, and it says something along the lines of, the Missouri State Police uh, prohibit anyone from entering the caves. And uh, apparently that sign hadn't been there before, or, or maybe the last time he had gone, he didn't remember it. And we saw the sign. I remember seeing the sign. I remember him seeing the sign. And it's kind of covered with grass. And there's already other people going in the cave right now. And everyone did it. And the youth were so excited. And we start walking toward the cave. And finally he just stopped and said, guys, we can't do it. We're not going to go in there. We're probably not going to get in trouble. Nobody pays attention to that sign. We're not going to get in trouble, but we're not going to do it. 
Our civil authorities have told us not to do this, so we're just not going to do it. He exhibited uprightness. I know many a pastor who would have said, it's no big deal. It's not that big a deal. We're not like breaking any real laws. Upright in all of his dealings and honest. He's also holy, meaning he seeks a life that is set apart for Jesus in all of his dealings. It means that everything of his life, everything that he is belongs to him. It's just what we just sang earlier when we said, take my life. Not just part of it. God doesn't only set apart the elder for Sundays. He wants the elder on Mondays and on Tuesdays and on Wednesdays and so on. His inner life is shaped by a desire to be set apart for God's use only. He wants to please God above pleasing man. Finally, he's disciplined. And this relates again to self-control. It literally means that he is master of himself. He has learned and is learning how to master his flesh, his passions, his emotions, his thoughts. Again, he is not perfect, just as he is not perfect in any of the things we've mentioned so far. But he is daily learning to be master of himself, to be disciplined. So if you're keeping count, you will see that we've covered only six of the positive virtues. And the seventh one stands out as unique to a certain degree for elders. And it's in verse 9. Verse 9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This leads me to my final point this morning. Elders are men appointed for the purpose of establishing a pattern of sound doctrine in the church. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that the elder must be able to teach. Now, to a certain degree, all Christians should be able to teach. For we're all called to make disciples. And the author of Hebrew even says that a sign of maturity for a Christian in Hebrews 5.12, he says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. He's saying a sign of maturity is that you're able to teach. Colossians 3.16 exhorts us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So in one sense, teaching, just like all the other virtues on this list, is to be practiced by the whole church. Yet we know that there is a role given to pastors that sets them apart as the authoritative teachers of the word over the whole church body. While all Christians are to watch their doctrine closely, elders are uniquely charged with guarding the doctrine of the church. And that's why James, he says in James chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers. He's referring here to a more of an official position in the church. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So we read that the elders, verse 9, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. First notice that he, the elder, was taught. He teaches what was first taught to him. That means it's not new, but something that's been passed on to him. Friends, novel teachers are usually false teachers. In the church, novel teachers are usually false teachers. Pastors don't have a new word. They have a very old word. They have a word that has been passed down from the apostles, from church to church through the ages, kept even during times of great church corruption, and passed on. It's trustworthy only in so much as it lines up with the Scriptures. So in our day and age, we like to have pastors, I need to hear something new. No, church, come to hear something old said again in new ways. But come to hear it again and again and again. 
That's the trustworthy word that was taught first to the elders and then passed on to others. So test teachers. Test them to see if their teaching holds firm to the word. If it does, then they were taught well. Embrace them. Let them teach. Let them pass on the good doctrine of the faith. But if their teaching does not align well with Scripture, then they were taught poorly. Do not let them have any voice in the church. An elder is only a good elder in so much as he adheres to the word of God. If he does, then he will be able to do what verse 9 says. He'll be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He'll be able. Notice he must be able. He must have some ability, some giftedness in teaching. For the office of elder, this means that there's a giftedness to publicly preach the gospel and carefully teach the church. There will hopefully be many in the church that possess a lot of doctrinal knowledge who are able to pass that knowledge on to others, but not all will be gifted in teaching doctrine publicly. We must be able to give, elders must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. I get so sick of hearing people say that doctrine is boring or worse, that it's bad. Here's a quote from, I'm on some loops where I get some videos sent to me, Christian videos that maybe you want to use in a worship service. So I got one this week and I said, well, I'll I'll just watch this Christian video. Here is the direct quote from the beginning of this video. What's keeping you from worship today? Division, doubt, doctrine, day-to-day troubles. Do you see where doctrine is put in the list? Friends, you cannot worship God without sound doctrine. This video is saying doctrine keeps you from worshiping God. That video is from the pit of hell. And it's being promoted in churches. Doctrine does not keep you, sound doctrine does not keep you from God. It drives you to accurate worship. And so you want elders who teach it, preach it unashamedly. But that's not the flavor of the day in the church in America. Why are so many churches doctrinally apathetic? Because they are lacking in godly Leadership. They've replaced elders with committees, pastors with communicators, and overseers with CEOs. The pastoral office is hardly recognizable in many churches, and so churches are filled with tons of programs, pragmatism, and publicity stunts while devoid of sound doctrine. And it's a sad state of affairs in our churches today. And I wish in the resurgence of worship that I saw when I was coming out of college in the 90s, there was a resurgence of worship and new worship leaders and and, and better music coming out. And I was hoping that that would drive the church more towards worship. But instead, you become worship has become idolized and doctrine has been set aside. As if they're two separate things. And so that's the state of affairs in the church today. And so... I personally, since having been back in the United States since 1990, have seen the church stray and stray and stray from sound doctrine. He must not only be able to teach the word of God, friends, he must also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And so you may think, well, boy, he's being a mean pastor, quoting that video and saying it's from the pit of hell. No, that's being a good pastor. Good pastors rebuke bad teaching. Good pastors know how to rebuke bad teaching while still holding to all these other things, which is very difficult. 
not being quarrelsome. You see, the problem is many of us want to rebuke bad teaching, and we love the fight. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I can't believe what that person taught and believes. Oh, I can't wait to get my reform gloves on him. Mm -mm. No, that's not what Paul teaches Timothy or Titus. There's got to be a gentleness about you, but also a boldness. He says, no, that's wrong, brother, and your soul is at stake. Like I said, this does not mean the elder enjoys confrontation. He's not to be an aggressive bully who seeks confrontation. He must not be quarrelsome, but he must rise to the challenge and confront when need be, because more than fearing people, he fears God. More than fearing confrontation, he loves God. He loves God's word, and he loves God's people. And so I'll tell you, that's why we need a multiplicity of elders here, because this is where I lack so, so greatly. I tend to lead towards the, don't be quarrelsome. Oh, yeah, okay, I can do that. But then when it comes time to perhaps hurt someone's feelings by showing them that their teaching is wrong, ah, boy, I have a hard time with that. And by God's grace, I've been able to do that from time to time here at Harvest. But I desperately need other men saying, hey, we're with you. Got your back here. Let's do this together. That's why you need a multiplicity of elders in the church, because there's lots of pastors like me. Confrontation isn't fun. We don't have a ball having confrontation. Some people do. They just love confrontation. Some of you out there, I know you've told me that. Oh, I, I love getting into a good old scrap. Not me. That's why God gifts people in different ways and brings elders together to run the church. First Timothy and Titus clearly teaches that elders are to be men who stand up for sound doctrine. They don't go around picking doctrinal fights, but they rush to the battle when the sheep are in danger. They rush to the battle when the sheep are in danger, and it's not easy, it's not fun, but it's necessary. So here's our conclusion. Just look at these three things. Elders are men appointed for the purpose of embedding a pattern of orderly governance in the church. Elders are men appointed for the purpose of exhibiting a pattern of godly living in the church. And elders are appointed for the purpose of establishing a pattern of sound doctrine in the church. But friends, as we think about this list, it helps us to think about what our elders are to be, but it should be driving all of us, as I've already said, to be thinking about who we should be. And this ties in very well with what we talked about in our Bible study right before we met this morning, in our, in our adult Bible study this morning. We talked about conversion and change. And you see, it's not that these qualities are something that the elder possesses in and of himself. Look at what I've accomplished. No, these qualities are the evidence that he has been changed and is being changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. An elder is only a good elder to the degree to which he's being changed by the presence of Jesus Christ in his life. And so for all of us, we're seeking these changes. We want to be more hospitable. We want to be less arrogant. And so what you're looking for in an elder is someone who shows the fruit of a life that's been converted and a life that's being changed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for in elders. This isn't some checkoff list. This is a drive you to Jesus list. 
When you see checkoff lists in Scripture, you see lists in Scripture that list virtues, don't look at them as, oh, okay, I can do that one pretty good. No, oh, I got like a .5 on that one. No! These are a drive you to Jesus list because these reflect His character. And what we want to do is be like Him. And for those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, we believe that He took our punishment, our death on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf, and in the process gave us His righteousness, made us into a new person. We were converted, we were born again, made into a new person, and we are now being conformed to the image of Christ day by day, progressively being made more holy. And so what you're looking for are men in the church who exhibit that. So please, don't look at this as a checkoff list. Either for your elders or for yourself. Look at it as a list that causes you to ask the question, is that man exhibiting Christ? And if so, he may be qualified to be an elder. But if not, perhaps he shouldn't be an elder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you again this morning as we already have in our prayers this morning, praising you for who you are and for the opportunity to come and to worship you. But God, I'm afraid that I'm so weak and everyone here is so weak that, that we can come to a passage like this and we can take it in such a way that it's not meant to be taken. And so God, I pray this morning that we would all be convicted by the word as we think about what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be of someone who's made into the image of Christ, that all of this list should be convicting to us. Because we know, we know in our heart how short we fall of each and every one of these things. And so God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would continue to do a work in the hearts of the believers here to make us more into the image of Christ, make us more into the image of the Son. But God, for those in here who are unbelievers, Lord, they can't do this. Matter of fact, they don't even understand this. For the unbelievers here this morning, Father, I know that they look at this list and they see morality. But God, if they continue to go along their life thinking that morality is the key to knowing you, that they can just do enough stuff and check off enough things, Father, they're going to check off their life directly into hell. God, I pray that there be any unbelievers here this morning that you would convict their heart that they need to have their sins forgiven. They can't work them off. They need them to be removed. They need them to be expunged. They need them to be absorbed by another. They need wrath to be taken off of them. And so God, if there be any in here this morning who have not professed faith in Christ, I pray, Lord, that that would be what they take from this message this morning. And Father, if there be any in here who feel the burden, the desire to be an elder, Father, I pray that they would just take these passages home and, and meditate upon them and in that process, be asking you to show them where they are not like you yet. And that they would then fall on the knees and ask you to do a work in their heart. And that they might take the scripture and use it like a sword and start killing that sin. May we all, Lord, just kill these sins that so easily entangle us. So God, I pray that this church would be about the process of killing sin and becoming more like the Son. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.